0: Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. I'm Bill Yates, the editor-in-chief of the journal, and today we will be discussing a recently accepted rapid report entitled Shared and Distinct Retinal Input to the Mouse Superior Colliculus and Dorsolateral Geniculate Nucleus. Before we begin, let's have our guests introduce themselves.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Erica Ellis, and I just graduated medical school from the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. This fall, I'll be headed to Bascom Palmer at the University of Miami to start a master's degree in the visual sciences and investigative ophthalmology. I worked on this project with Gabe at the Genelia Research Campus during my time in the HHMI Medical Fellows program.
2: My name is Gabe Murphy. I am currently at the Allen Institute for Brain Science, although, as Erica mentioned, the work we did together was at at HHMI's Genelia Research Campus. Here at the Allen Institute, uh, I lead efforts to systematically characterize the cellular properties of neurons and the patterns and strength of synaptic signaling between those neurons.
3: Hi, I'm Greg Schwartz. I'm an assistant professor in the departments of ophthalmology and physiology at Northwestern University. I study visual processing in the retina.
4: Hi, I'm Sam Solomon from the Department of Experimental Psychology at University College London. I've studied the signals that are sent along visual pathways in the primate brain for many years. At UCL, we have also been looking
0: at visual pathways in mice. Thank you everybody for joining me here today. Greg, how about starting things off for us?
3: Sure, Bill. Erica, this was a really nice study on a number of levels, but I want to start with the methodological aspects because I think it sets a really high standard in that regard. What were some of the technical challenges that you encountered in retrograde labeling from these two different brain areas? Do you think that the strategies you used to overcome these challenges and the controls you employed to check for specificity could be used in other tracing studies throughout the brain?
1: Thanks, Greg. That's an excellent question. The primary goal of our project was to compare the retinal inputs of the superior colliculus and the lateral geniculate nucleus. And to do this, we used retrograde labeling techniques to identify populations of retinal ganglion cells that project either to the superior colliculus, the LGN, or to both areas. Now, one of the technical challenges we encountered in this project was finding a tracer that would provide unbiased, robust, and specific labeling. Unbiased in that we wanted to label all the classes of retinal ganglion cells projecting to an area. Robust in that we wanted the tracer to have efficient uptake in order to label the highest proportion of cells projecting to that area. And specific in that we only wanted to label cells that had axon terminals within our target area while avoid labeling cells with axons that pass near or through the target area. So we found that lipophilic dyes, such as DiO or DiI, had very robust labeling, but they were also taken up by axons of passage. By comparison, injections of G-deleted rabies virus provided sparse labeling, but only labeled retinal ganglion cells that synapsed within a given area. Now, we know this because injections of rabies virus into the rostral superior colliculus did not label retinal ganglion cells innervating the caudal superior colliculus, even though caudal-projecting retinal ganglion cell axons passed directly through the rostral superior colliculus. So our selection of tracer was ultimately constrained by the anatomical features of the brain area that we were targeting. When targeting the LGN, we had to prioritize using a tracer that was specific to synaptic terminals. This is because the axons of retinal ganglion cells projecting to the superior colliculus and a number of other retino recipient regions pass very near to the LGN. On the other hand, when targeting the caudal superior colliculus, this area is relatively isolated from other retinorecipient recipient areas and there's little concern of labeling axons of passage. So by combining these two retrograde labeling techniques based on the anatomical constraints of our target areas, we were able to achieve robust and specific labeling of superior colliculus projecting cells using lipophilic dyes and sparse but specific labeling of LGN projecting cells using rabies virus. This allows us to determine the fraction of LGN projecting retinal ganglion cells that also innervate the superior colliculus, but not the converse. That is, we can't tell the fraction of SC projecting retinal ganglion cells that also innervate the LGN without a way to both robustly and specifically label LGN projecting retinal ganglion cells. So I think these challenges just emphasize the importance of considering both the properties of the tracer and the anatomical constraints placed by the targeted brain area when you're conducting tracing studies. And often, the most powerful approach is to combine different labeling techniques to best fit the needs of your experiment.
3: Great. Thanks very much, Erica. What surprised you about the different retinal information sent to LGN and SC, given the dogma about these two different brain areas?
1: Classically, the LGN is viewed as a relay center that receives high-resolution visual information relevant to visual perception and sends this information onto the visual cortex. The superior colliculus is classically viewed as a sensory-motor integration center, processing visual information relevant to things like um, coordinated eye movements. Now, one of the most surprising findings of our study was that a subset of on-transient retinal ganglion cells that responded selectively to small stimuli projected primarily if not exclusively to the superior colliculus. In fact, in general, we found that retinal ganglion cells that responded best to small stimuli were far more likely to be labeled from the superior colliculus and not the LGN. This is contrary to what's seen in the primate where most if not all retinal ganglion cells that respond selectively to small stimuli project to the LGN. So this finding, along with um, other recent studies, suggests that the superior colliculus probably plays a more complex role in visual information processing. And in fact, it may even be important to uh, visual perception through its connections to higher visual areas by way of the lateral posterior thalamic nucleus. So while our study provides evidence that the difference in the outputs between the superior colliculus and the LGN are at least in part due to differences in their input, the significance of our findings really need to be explored further by taking a closer look at the specific patterns of connections between individual classes of retinal ganglion cells and different populations of neurons within the LGN or the SC.
3: Thanks so much, Erica. That's a great segue to my next question for Gabe. So, your group has also worked on the response properties and connectivity within SC and between SC and other brain regions, including LGN. How does this new work add insights about what kinds of visual information may flow between these two brain areas and how they interact with each other?
2: This study revealed some quantitative differences in the retinal input to the LGN and the colliculus. And Erica mentioned one already, but another is that the kinetics of the ganglion cells' uh, responses of the ganglion cells that project to the colliculus were generally much faster than that of the RGCs that project uh, to the LGN. But the qualitative picture that emerged is that much of the ganglion cell input to one structure is also conveyed to the other. I think our other work in the in, in both the colliculus, in, in the colliculus in particular, suggests that the, the same kind of scheme is not necessarily true there. In fact, it might be the opposite. So There, we find that largely, um, if not entirely separate sets of neurons, collicular neurons, project to the LGN and to a second visual thalamic nucleus that Erica mentioned, uh, LP, which is also known uh, as pulvinar. We found there that the response properties of the colliculus neurons that project to the LGN and LP are quite distinct. And in particular, the lp projecting cells respond best to the slow movement of small stimuli, whereas the lgn projecting cells respond best to the rapid appearance or disappearance of large stimuli.
4: Gabe, thanks a lot for that. Sam Solomon here. It's striking from your work that nearly all the ganglion cells in the retina project to the spiroclicalis in rodents. And this means that the retinal output to other brain areas that are involved in very other different processes are also copied to the spiroclicalis. To me, this seems quite contrary to the view that each ganglion cell has one specialized role uh, in visual processing. And I was wondering if you could tell me why the
2: SC sees everything. I agree that it's contrary to the notion that um, each ganglion cell has a very specific role I'm not sure I subscribe to that notion, but I think it's one that's kind of been around for a while. And indeed, there are ganglion cells that avoid the colliculus and seem to serve a very particular role. And the classic example of that are the on-direction selective ganglion cells that innervate the accessory optic system. That is the system that's responsible for detecting and compensating for global motion. On the other hand, some of our other work that uh, isn't in this paper, you know, indicated that we found on-direction selective ganglion cells that were retrogradely labeled from the cliculus. And those on-direction-selective ganglion cells projecting to the cliquidus are qualitatively quite similar uh, to the on-direction-selective ganglion cells that project elsewhere. So I think your point is well taken in that the cliquidus is getting input from most, if not all, of the types of ganglion cells that are innervating the rest of the brain. So with regards to the cliquidus seeing all of the visual input, I think it just reinforces the idea or the kind of suggestion, I think, that's, that's really gathering steam at this point, that the colliculus might be playing a substantially stronger or more important role in visual processing than than it's really gotten credit for for a while. There's quite a bit of work uh, over the last decade or so from a number of groups, Rich Krauslitz is is certainly one of them, that's identified roles for the colliculus in really quite complicated visual tasks. And it might well be that the ability of the colliculus to Mm -hmm. underlie that visual functionality is dependent on it having access to as much information about the visual scene as possible. And, and one way to do that is to have as many, if not all, the different types of ganglion cells that exist project to the clicos.
4: Thanks, Kate. So one of the really beautiful things about this work is trying to marry two different techniques to characterize uh, nerve cells, functional and anatomical. And I know that you think that there are many possible ways to categorize a nerve cell, for example, the morphology of it, the transcriptome, the connectome, or its functional response. Do you think there is a more important way for actually forming natural classification schemes of nerve cells that perhaps your work sheds light on?
2: I think at this point, and and for a while now, it's been relatively easy to distinguish cells on the basis of a given factor, you know, like a transcription factor that they express or the cell's morphology. But in my opinion, it really only makes sense to think of the cells as belonging to distinct groups or classes when a variety of cellular signatures co-vary reliably. So that is when you can predict, for example, the transcriptomic features of a given cell, from its somatodendritic morphology, or you can predict the cell's response to visual stimuli from the downstream neurons or areas that that cell innervates. So in short, I think it's the combination of cellular signatures, rather than any one cellular signature in particular, that provides the most meaningful and robust way to distinguish and classify different neurons, whether they're in the retina or in downstream regions for that matter.
4: Thanks, Kate. So Erica, given your background and your upcoming career, Looking at the results from the broader perspective, what do you think we might learn about human vision in health or in disease from these kinds of experiments?
1: There are a number of constraints that limit our ability to explore the projections of primate retinal ganglion cells in the way that we can in rodents. Nonetheless, We think that many of the general principles that emerge from our study and other rodent studies will apply to the visual system in humans. Now, the visual system is better understood than many other sensory systems, and yet there's still a lot to learn if we're to understand the basis of visual perception and to develop effective treatments for visually impairing diseases. Our study highlights some information that's relevant to many currently developing treatments. For example, with retinal degenerative diseases, patients lose the photoreceptive layer in their retina. Current efforts aimed at restoring vision in these patients use techniques that introduce photosensitivity to either retinal inner neurons or directly to the retinal ganglion cells themselves. Now, these technologies are still very early in development, and they don't necessarily maintain the selective response profiles of different classes of retinal ganglion cells. In order to be able to restore normal physiological vision to these patients, these treatments not only need to restore photosensitivity to the retina, but also to reproduce the specific patterns of activity elicited by light stimulus in different classes of retinal ganglion cells. In order to do this, we really need to have a better understanding of the response properties of these different classes of retinal ganglion cells. Knowing where different retinal ganglion cells project is also important in developing treatments. For example, in glaucoma, high interocular pressure causes the loss of retinal ganglion cell axons and eventually the death of the retinal ganglion cell layer. Treatments aimed at restoring vision in these patients focus on ways to regenerate retinal ganglion cell axons or stem cell therapies to produce completely new retinal ganglion cells. For these treatments to work, it is important to know the appropriate targets for different classes of retinal ganglion cells and to understand axon targeting in order to send the correct visual information to the proper downstream areas. Other techniques to restore vision aim to bypass the retina altogether by providing direct stimulation to V1 or other cortical areas. And for these techniques to work, we really need to have a better understanding of the inputs that these areas receive.
0: I'd like to thank our guests for participating in today's discussion of the article Shared and Distinct Retinal Input to the Mouse Superior Colliculus and Dorsolateral Geniculate Nucleus, part of the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology.